0: One of the peculiar things about stress, depression, times of intense hardship, is, is that one of the feelings that typically is so overwhelming is a sense of being alone. Uh, when you go through incredible difficulties, even if, if you're surrounded by people that you know care about you, you still feel alone. It, it that, that loneliness of the heartache is, is one of the most shattering aspects of difficult times of life. And, and oftentimes, uh, stress and difficulty is hard on marriages because we look, for instance, to our spouse and say, why can't you meet, why aren't you there for me? And it's not that they're not there for us, it's just that, that the, the difficulty is so isolating. Pain is so isolating. It, 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 no matter what the circumstances, no matter how big the crowd, when you're depressed, when you're stressed, when you're fearful, one of the oddest things that can accompany that is the sense of just being alone. And bad things happen there. That's why the body of Christ is so important. E- each of us needs people that intervene in our lives. Each of us needs people that we can call and say, hey, I'm struggling. Each of us needs those friendships that, that we know matter to us. Uh, I've told many times that I worked for John Walford, who was president of Dallas Seminary for decades and was a giant theologically and in leadership and every other way. And he, the year before I moved into his office, he lost his son, who was my age. And Timothy had just finished grads, uh, medical school and was preparing to be a doctor and was just a beacon to everyone who knew him and he was killed in a car accident. And Dr. Walver told me many stories. I wish I'd kept notes and written a book um, because I learned a lot. Um, but the one he told about losing Timothy was that he said, Andy, he said, in my heartache, people would come and they would quote Bible verses to me. He said... Do they really think I don't know the Bible? Um, He said the the person that meant the most was Dick Sumi. Now, Dr. Sumi was the chaplain. He he lived with um, dialysis for, at that point, a point longer than almost anyone in the country, uh, like for 20 years, and then ironically was killed in a car accident. Um, uh, And he was a grand man who had had a significant pastorate and, Dr. Walvard said, everyone else, they weren't real helpful. But Dr. Sumi came in, and he sat down next to me. And he didn't say a word. He was just there. And that's the one I remember. See, one of the realities of, of pain and depression and stress is it can be staggeringly lonely and isolating. And and one of the great enemies of getting through those times is when we fall into that isolation and don't engage those around us whom we know love us. We're going to look at the life of a, one of the real dudes of the Old Testament. If you look in your Bible dictionary under dudes, Elijah should be there. I mean, he was a dude. He, he uh, we were at Mount Carmel on our Israel trip, and there's a huge bronze statue of him. He is the the uh, God-fearing Jews to this day believe that Elijah comes and instructs their rabbis, uh, according so that they understand the Torah better. They believe that he is with them when they celebrate the Passover Seder. They they believe that that he attends. Um, uh, the uh, circumcision of their boys, uh, they believe that he will return when the Messiah finally comes. He is hugely significant to the nation of Israel and, its, and, its, and Jewish worship. He, he is, there is no prophet in the Old Testament that stands taller than Elijah. But ironically, there's very little we know about him. He just shows up. We know he's a tishbite, he bites tishes apparently. Um, you know, I mean, well, that's all we know. He's from Tishba. And even that's confusion, because the word can be translated visitor, and some people say, so he is visiting Tish. I mean, it's, there's a real question about him. We don't know much about him. Some even believe because of the word that's used, he might even be Gentile. I personally disagree, because his, word, his, his name in Hebrew means God, Yahweh is God, which is so Hebrew, I don't believe that he could be anything but a Jew himself. Um, he's a significant person. But as I reread about him through all this, one of the things that struck me, and what I hope you walk away from this series is, what's it like to live in difficult times and feel like you're alone? To be in the desert, to be in the wilderness, to, to, to be in those incredibly hard times and feel alone. Because I think Elijah is a great illustration of that. If you have a Bible, turn in your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 16. Uh, James chapter 5 verse 16 refers to Elijah. Uh, James five sixteen he says, uh, Elijah was a man just like us. Isn't that incredible? By the authority of Scripture, Elijah was no different from you and me. One of the things we like to do when we read biblical characters and say, yeah, they're not like us, though. They were somehow special. But James says, no, he was just like us. And he fervently prayed, and because of his prayer, there was no rain for three and a half years. Which, by the way, tells us something about prayer. It's not the prayer, the one praying, that gives prayer power. It's the one to whom you're praying that gives prayer power. Uh, we often think, well, I, my prayers aren't answered because I'm just a little old me. Well, that's, that's the confusion. It, it's, it's not about us. It's about the one to whom we're praying. And James says, Elijah, he, went, he was just like us. In fact, we know from Scripture he wore camel hair, clothing, couldn't be comfortable. Uh, the rabbis say it was black camel hair I always envisioned a camel house sport coat with a you know a nice handkerchief in the pocket but but it was black camel hair he lived out in the wilderness which we think of trees it was more like desert except for the floors were rock and not sand and he was a tishbite but he prayed and because of his prayer the rain stopped for three and a half years Before we get to that, I want you to look with me at 1 Kings chapter 16, beginning with verse 23. Let's set the stage, the timing of when Elijah came. Uh, Evil times. In the 31st year of Asa, king of Judah, that is the southern kingdom, in the northern kingdom, Omri became king of Israel, and he reigned 12 years, six of them in Tisra. And then he brought the hill of Samaria from Shirmer. For two talents of silver and built a city on the hill and called it Samaria after Shimmer, the name of the former owner of the hill. And Samaria became the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel. But Omri did evil in the eyes of the Lord and sinned more than all of those before him. Well, there's good to be known for something, right? Um, he walked in all the ways of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, and in his sin, which he had caused Israel to commit, so that they provoked the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger by their worthless idols. They noticed that he caused the nation to sin by his leadership. He was idolatrous, which brought anger from God and, and did great damage to the people. As for the other events of Omri's reign, what he did in And the things he achieved, are they not written in the book of the annals of the king of Israel, which we don't have? Omri rested with his fathers and was buried in Samaria. And Ahab, his son, succeeded him as king. And in the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, son of Omri, became king of Israel. And he reigned in Samaria over Israel 22 years. Ahab, the son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. He outdid bad. He not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, son of Naboth, but he also married Jezebel, daughter of Ephbaal, king of the Sidonians, and began to serve Baal and worship him. And he set up an altar of Baal Baal, in the temple of Baal that he built in Samaria, and Ahab also made Asherah a pole and did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than did all the kings before him. In other words, he not only allowed idolatry in the high places of the nation of Israel, he institutionalized idolatry by making it the central focus of the capital. Baal, or Baal, as we say in English, was the god of of lightning and of weather and storms. He was pictured as having a lightning bolt in his hand and oftentimes depicted as a bull because he was the god of fertility and strength. Uh, Think the bull of Wall Street, all that that implies. He was a god that they would pray to because they assumed that he alone provided for the rain that they would need for their crops. He was uh, the god of the Sidonians, the people of Sidon, and that will become significant later on. And he was, uh, he and Asherah, the male I mean, the female god were associated with all of the idolatry of the land of Canaan. And this king made it the official religion of the nation of Israel, in effect, by setting up the temple in the capital. And then there's an odd sentence afterwards, but I think it explains so much. Uh, Verse 34, in Ahab's time, Hael of Bethel rebuilt Jericho. That seems like a good enough idea. He laid its foundations at the cost of his firstborn son, Abiram, and he set up the gates at the cost of his youngest son, Seguv, in accordance with the word of the Lord spoken by Joshua, son of Nun. Huh? Uh, Joshua 6.26 says, At that time Joshua pronounced this solemn oath, Cursed before the Lord is the man who undertakes to rebuild this city, Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn son will he lay its foundation. At the cost of its younger son will he set up its gates. Under Ahab, they disregarded the curse and word of the Lord and rebuilt Jericho, and as a consequence they expended experienced the results of what Joshua had predicted. Um, some scholars believe just simply that his lives the lives of his sons were taken. I personally think there is a more accurate solution that fits the text better. Excavations in in the land of Canaan have found in the walls at the gates of ancient cities jars with the uh, skeletons of infants in them. According to Canaanite worship, they would at times sacrifice infants and put their, sa- their skeletons in the walls surrounding the gates to ward off evil spirits and to bring power to the nation. I personally believe that's what he's implying because it's showing just how far the nation has fallen. Canaanite worship often included human sacrifice, especially children. And this is an example of that, and it's a demonstration of just how evil the times were in the nation of Israel. 17.1, now Elijah the Tishbite from Tishba in Gilead said to Ahab, as the Lord the God of Israel lives, whom I serve, There will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years, except at my word. Now, that's stout. That's why I call him the dude. He walks up and says, it ain't going to rain unless I tell it to. Have a nice day. You know what I'm saying? We know nothing about him. But according to the book of James, which I suspect is based on rabbinical tradition, he had earnestly prayed... And he knew that God's consequence for Israel when they were disobedient included drought. If you read Deuteronomy chapter 11 in the context of the promises for the nation of Israel, it specifically says to Israel, if you pursue other gods, if you leave me, then I will stop the rain and you will go hungry. So that Elijah on the authority of Scripture and after fervent prayer has the courage to go to the king and say... God is bringing this judgment. And that's a lonely thing to do. That's a lonely thing to do. Elijah is this guy who's just like you and me, but he believes God's Word. He he respects God's character. He prays fervently and trusts God to do what he says he will do. And as such, he's one of the most significant characters in all of the Old Testament. Then the chapter turns, and I believe the rest of the chapter is is really designed in some ways for us, but in many ways it's telling about things that were for Elijah. Elijah. In fact, Chrysostom, the, the greatest preacher of the church fathers, said that these stories are when God instructs Elijah of what it means to trust God in his own life. Because, he, see, oftentimes when we're young in our faith, we have courage and boldness. You know, we, we just don't know any better but to believe God. Over time in our faith, though, we find that trusting God's not so simple. And our faith has to be strengthened for the hard times, for the times when God's answer to our prayers is not yet. And, and when we have to have our hearts shaped to be more like God's heart, not with the boldness only, but also with the compassion and love for others. And the next two stories, we, we see God shaping Elijah's heart so that he is qualified to be the dude of the Old Testament. Look with me, if you will, verse 2. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah, leave here, turn eastward, and hide in the Kareth Ravine, east of the Jordan, and you will drink from the book, and I have ordered the ravens to feed you there. So he did what the Lord had told him. He went to Kareth Ravine, a wadi, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, just a big dry spot that during the rainy season has water, east of Jordan, and he stayed there. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. But God cared for him. Someone has said, the will of God will never lead us where the grace of God cannot keep us. The will of God will never lead us where the grace of God cannot keep us. And God's intention for Elijah, having led him to speak with boldness to the king, now protects him to go to Careth Ravine and be alone for a season. And learning what it is to trust God. And then God, ironically, chooses to use ravens to bring him food. See, that doesn't… I mean, it's just another bird to most of us. But to a Jew, it's offensive because they were unclean. Uh, God uses unlikely things to provide. And for a season, Elijah is taught of how God will provide for him. Verse 7. Uh, sometime later, the brook dried up, well, because there was this whole drought thing going. And because so there had been no rain in the land, and then the word of the Lord came to him, go at once to Zarephath of Sidon and stay there. Well, Zarephath of Sidon, uh, Sidon is where Jezebel came from, Ahab's wife. Sidon, are, uh, the Phoenicians of Sidon are the ones who invented Baal. Baal was a, a god of the Phoenicians of Sidon. And therefore, God is now moving him into the very heart of the enemy territory, if you will. And I've commanded a widow in that place to supply you with food. So, he we went to Zarephath. And when he came to the town gate, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called her and said, would you bring me a little water in a jar so I may have a drink? And as she was going to get it, he called out and said, and by the way, please, bring me some bread. And as surely as the Lord your God lives, she replied, I don't have any bread. Only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. I'm gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son so that we can eat it and die. Wow. Wow. One of the things that's interesting about the will of God And this is something that's hard to get your mind around. God will work in your life at the perfect time and in the perfect way to bless other people's lives as well. God's plan for Elijah was timed so that it would meet the need of this widow who was a Gentile in the land of Baal. And sometimes I think God waits because He's just not quite ready to work in the lives of everybody around us. Jesus uses this story in one of His sermons. When He goes to Nazareth, He says, you know, a prophet didn't welcome him in his own home. In fact, have you ever thought about why God used Elijah to bless a widow of Sidon when there were plenty of widows in Israel? And that really messed with their minds, and they threw him out. Um, But but God had a particular concern for this woman, I think because she had a tender heart to the God of Israel, and and because she had a particular need, and because she was uniquely qualified to teach the prophet about God. And, And so, he brings her to her, brings him to her, and says, would you bring me some food? And she says, well, I'm about to prepare my last meal for me and my son. Verse 13, Elijah said to her, don't be afraid, go home and do as you have said, but first make a small cake of bread for me from what you have and bring it to me, and then make something for yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord of God of Israel says, the jar of flour will not be used up and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day of the Lord gives rain to the land. Did you catch what Elijah and God are doing to this poor woman? Did you catch it? Give me your last breath. That's what he said. She said, I only have one enough for one loaf. He says, give that one to me. And then God will provide for you. Men and women, oftentimes, God will not bring the blessing we most want and see, until he sees us take the step that we most fear. Uh, we, we tend to play this game of prayer chicken with God. God, I will trust you. I will obey you when you do what I want. And God said, that's not necessarily the way it works. Oftentimes, God will cause us to grow in our faith by challenging us to obey. And then he will bless that growing faith and obedience. Now, I'm not saying that, therefore, I can manipulate God. I'll go do something crazy, and then he'll be obligated. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that in God's plan for for directing and growing his people, his sovereignty doesn't erase the fact that we have a responsibility to act out of faith. And this woman is one of the heroes of Scripture because she takes her very last bread and gives it to the prophet and believes that God is big enough to provide for them. She's amazing. She's got, she's got much bigger faith than Elijah. It's just not as big a mouth, you know. And that's what happens. She went away and did as Elijah told her so there was food every day for Elijah and for the woman and her family for the jar of flour was not used up and the jug of oil did not run dry in keeping the word of the Lord spoken by Elijah. God provided for this woman in the midst of the famine because she took the step of faith. Verse 17. God causes Elijah to see his work on a whole new level. Sometime later, the son of the woman who owned the house became ill. He grew worse and worse and finally stopped breathing. And she said to Elijah, what what do you have against me, man of God? Did you come to remind me of my sin and kill my son? She had a very common, it was a very pagan view of what the deities were there to do the the pagan deities were you know uh, basically were were to be manipulated so that we could be blessed so we did sacrifices we did all the all the things the pagan deities were designed to somehow manipulate the deity to do good things for us but but there was never grace or love in any of that so her son becomes ill and she says so i guess you've shown up just show me how bad i am And apart from grace, that's a natural understanding of difficulties, isn't it? When we have difficult times, don't we have a tendency to, at least when it's difficult times in other people, to ask the question, wonder what they did to deserve it? You know, sometimes we'll even use that as an excuse not to help people. Well, look at at what they've done. Of course they deserve the difficulty. Uh, You know what I've learned as a pastor? We all deserve it. We, we all deserve it sometimes God grace we don't <laughs> receive the consequences of what we deserve but the reality is none of us deserves anything I mean we all made so many mistakes that we've gotten by with that we kind of like that charm kid that thinks I can keep, I can get by one more time and then it'll be okay and then when we it catches up with us we say, oh, oh that's not fair the reality is none of us deserve blessings because all of us are broken and failing and 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 so she says to this man of God I guess you're here to just show me how bad I am you're going to bring judgment And I'm going to lose the one thing that I care about in my life. But she doesn't know the God of Israel yet. Um, She's operating from a view of God apart from His grace. Verse 19, give me your son, Elijah replied. And he took him uh, from her, her arms and carried him up to the upper room where he was staying. He would have lived in a room up on the roof of the house so that there would have been Appropriate segregation from the family. And he laid him on his bed and he cried out to the Lord. Again, a man of prayer. You know, can I just say this? If, if we prayed half as much as we complained and worried, don't look at me that way. I see your Facebook posts. If we prayed half as much as we complained and worried, God only knows what would happen. We are, we are a generation that have lost the discipline of prayer. We really have. Um, uh, our idea of prayer is, is, is and, and it's appropriate to shoot those quick, help me Lord prayers up, but, but that, that earnest prayer for our nation, God help our nation. I mean, everybody's unhappy with our political leaders, right? I mean, everybody's unhappy one side or the other. I mean, uh, uh, whether you're blue or red or donkey or elephant, everybody's unhappy, right? I know, because, again, I read your posts, um, and some of them could be edited a little. But, you know, um, are things in our life that we're not happy with? I mean... Do we pray? Do do we believe God enough to spend seasons on our face before Him, asking for His mercy? It's not that it manipulates Him. It is an exercise of faith. In doing so, it, it shifts our focus from ourselves to Him. And it strengthens our ability to trust that He is alone as the solution. We we betray the fact that we do not really trust God and really trust the political process more because that's what we think about. We uh, we spend so much uh, energy on, on the humanity of our problems rather than God's sovereign control because I think we deep down don't think God can do anything about it. But if we truly believe that God is the one who can intervene, then we'd spend less time carping about all of that and more time on our knees before the sovereign God. So Elijah takes this young boy and takes him up to his room and lays his his lifeless body on his bed. And he prays. Oh Lord, my God, have you brought tragedy also upon this widow? Notice also, I think this this shows he felt like he had a tragic life as well. Why? He was alone. He was alone. When society wants to punish someone, what do we do? It's called solitary confinement, it's alone. And when Satan wants to destroy us, what does he do? He isolates us by our feelings and our hurt. Have you done that by causing her son to die? Then he stretched himself out on the boy three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, let this boy's life return to him. And the Lord heard Elijah's cry, and the boy's life returned to him, and he lived. This is, by the way, the first resurrection in Scripture. Elijah picked up the child and carried him down from the room into the house, and he gave him to his mother and said, look, your son is alive. The ancient rabbis believed that this prefigures the resurrection from the dead that we as his followers will ultimately experience if we have placed our faith and hope in Jesus. And then we have a confession of faith, I believe, by the woman. She said to Elijah, now I know that you are a man of God and it is the word of the Lord from your mouth, and it's true, because I've seen him act." So on one level, we see God caring about this nameless widow in a pagan land that created Baal, and you see God's sovereign concern for nameless people. But ironically, God uses this nameless widow to instruct Elijah on prayer and faith and compassion. Because this bold prophet becomes a man of compassion who literally lays himself before God over the lifeless body, begging God to act. Have you seen God act? Have you ever prayed earnestly and seen Him answer? Is there something in your life right now that you must seek God for? Or is there a step of faith, a last loaf of bread that He's asking you to take, a step to make? even the Old Testament is draped in the grace of God. It's not by our obedience that we earn God's blessing. We do it solely based on faith in what Jesus did on the cross. Uh, Jesus took on the sins of humanity because we couldn't do it. And died in our place and was resurrected, brought life because God's Word always ultimately brings life, just as in this story. And, and God meets all of us in the context of His grace, just like He did the widow of Sidon. But God is always schooling us, right? He's always teaching us that how we respond to that grace is to become so committed and, and convinced of it that we're willing to take steps of faith, trusting that His grace will be there. And that his will is perfect, even when it's not exactly what we had in mind. I don't think Elijah woke up and said one day, you know what I'd love to do? I'd love to live in a ditch. That'd be fun. Eating food that dirty birds brought to me. That'd be cool. And then I'd like to go to a pagan land where they want to kill me and live on the roof of a poor widow who can't even feed her family. That sounds great fun. Let's go for it. Put it on Facebook. Wow. The reality is, oftentimes God will take us in directions we never anticipated. But what He does ask us is, do you trust me enough to take the step of obedience that I have for you? And that's what God may be asking you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the story of this man of God, a man who is just like us, and yet whom you used to accomplish incredible things. Father, give us the courage of our convictions. Help us to trust you enough that we'll take steps of faith, even when it feels as though we're alone. And show us yourself so that we might be strengthened. Lord, give us compassion for those around us, whose struggles are even greater than our own. And thank you, Lord, that ultimately you don't meet us on our obedience. You meet us in your grace through your son's death on the cross. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.